passage for this morning is from 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 12. John writes, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we are so grateful for your word, and today we are so grateful for your heart toward your people. And I pray that as you draw your family close to your lap, Father, I pray that you would make your heart so clear to us that we would have a depth of assurance and a height of joy. I thank you for what you did through John for the early church, and I thank you for what you're going to do through him for this church today. And so by faith in you, I give you thanks and praise for all that will occur in this room right now. In the mighty and the matchless and the merciful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Beloved, do you have any idea how much God loves you in Christ? Do you have any clue? And do you understand, not only in your mind, but in the depth of your heart, that you're not loved just by any old person, but that you are passionately and infinitely loved by the God who created the heavens and earth, and upholds them all by nothing more than the power of his words. Do you understand that you're so powerfully loved by this God that he elected you by name from before the foundation of the world? He already chose you, wrote your name in his book of life. Do you understand that that God predestined you to be conformed into the image of Jesus so that one day you would be like his son. You would image Jesus in a way that's glorifying to him and accurate towards others. Do you know that this God loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son into the world to live a righteous life and die a real death on the cross, not just randomly, but for you. He laid down his life so that your sins would be forgiven. And when you put your faith in him, the father would let the gavel fall to the ground and he would declare you righteous. He would declare you holy in his sight. He would declare you acceptable to him, both now and forevermore. Such is the love of God in Christ for you. Do you understand that that God, even this moment, through his word and communion and the fellowship of his people, is sanctifying you, setting you apart for himself, giving you a greater passion for him than that you have for yourself, for your family, for the world, for everything else that's in the world? Do you understand that he's graciously preparing you so that when you see him face to face, you will have a full and eternal joy in him through the Lord Jesus Christ? Beloved, I encourage you, do not answer this question too quickly. Do you have any clue how much you are loved by God in Jesus Christ? I don't. 
But I can tell you this. I know that the measure of the Father's love for his people, for every believer in this room, is the measure of his love for his own son. That much I know. He calls his son beloved, he calls us beloved. All the favor that he pours upon Jesus, he pours upon us because by faith we have been made one with Jesus. All the pleasure and affection that the Father has for Jesus, he has for us. And I'll say it more personally, he has for you. By name, he has this for you because by faith you have become one with Jesus. And our Father wants us not only to understand this in our minds, he wants us to feel this in our hearts. And I'll tell you something, key to feeling that in our hearts is having a sense of security in our relationship with him and a sense of certainty that once we belong to him, we're gonna belong to him forever and ever. And this brings us to the heart of what the message is about today because what the message is about today is this. As we gain an assurance of our salvation in Christ, we gain a fullness of joy in Christ. As we know that our salvation is secure, then our joy becomes higher and higher and higher in our Savior. A full assurance breeds full joy. That's what today is about. And I'm telling you, I mean, I would have said this in any case, but I've been praying over this, brooding over youth in prayer for seven days. And I'm telling you, God wants you to feel this and not just understand it. Understanding is very crucial. We'll see that today. But today, God wants to grab our hearts. And he wants us to know that we belong to him both now and forevermore through Jesus Christ. The Bible says that everyone who believes in Jesus is adopted into the family of God. This thing of of adoption, very prominent in the Bible, very important in the Bible. In the Roman world, if people had a child, they could legally disown that child for any number of, of specific reasons. They could alienate that kid from the family and from the assets of the family. But in the Roman world, if a family adopted a child, they were legally disallowed from disowning that child. They could not disown them from the family. They could not disown them from the assets of the family. Once that adopted child was in, that child was in until death did them part. And so when the New Testament uses the metaphor of adoption to talk about what it's like for us to become a part of the family of God, it's trying to communicate something to us. And to put that in a single word, it's security. Security. We are adopted children in the family of God. And you know what adopted children need more than anything? They need to know that they belong for good. They really need to know that. An adopted child needs to feel inside of his or her heart that they belong and they're gonna keep on belonging until the end of their days. They need to feel that they actually have a family, that they actually have a home. It's no hoax, it's no joke. And we need that too. We need this kind of security. Our Father knows this more than we do. And so I I promise you, today, he's called us to gather together to hear this word. We have a security in our salvation, and therefore, we can have a fullness of joy in our Savior. That's what today is about. Now, if you're here today, and you have yet to put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have yet to trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and the restoration of your relationship with God, I have to say to you 
that the things we're going to see in the Bible today do not apply directly to you, at least not yet. And I don't say that to be rude to you. I don't say that to alienate you from what's happening here at church today. We're very glad that you're here. And I certainly don't say that to put myself or any other believer up over you as though we're looking down on you because believe me, nobody's looking down on you here today. Well, maybe somebody is, but they shouldn't be. Believers don't act like that. We're not here to look down on anybody. We're recipients of grace and forgiveness that we can't even believe. And that will humble your heart like like you can't believe. But I have to be honest with you that the scripture sees people who believe in Jesus differently from people who don't believe in Jesus. And if you don't believe in Jesus, the things we're going to celebrate today are not true about you, but they can be. And in fact, they can be true of you today. And so if you hear this message and you hear how God the Father thinks about and feels about and treats his children, and this is something that you want, all you have to do is confess your sin to, the, to, the, to God and put your faith in Jesus Christ that he has done enough to secure your forgiveness. And God makes you this promise that if you will just confess your sins, he will forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He will adopt you into his family and you will be in forever. That's the hope that I lay out before you today. But with that, I want now to turn to the scripture and celebrate what God the Father has to say to his children, to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ by the power of his hand. John spent the first couple verses of his letter exalting the glory of God and of Jesus and focusing in the purpose of his letter. And then in chapter one, verse five, to chapter two, verse six, he issued some encouragements and some warnings about our love for God. And he helped us see how we can know if we have come to know God or not. So that little section is really important. There are a lot of people who think they know God. John said, here's how you can know that you know God. Then in chapter two, verses seven through 11, John basically did the same thing, but now he was talking about our love for one another. And by this, he meant our love for brothers and sisters who are in Christ. And his basic point was that if you love those who God loves with a love like I just described, then you know God. But if you do not like, and if in fact you despise people that God loves with an eternal love, how can you possibly know God? That's the point of chapter two, verses seven through 11. In verses 12 through 14, I think John had a heart to assure the church that he was writing to back in the day of what his perspective was about them. I think John was a little bit concerned that in hearing the things he had to say, they would begin to doubt their salvation. And John wrote for exactly the opposite purpose. 1 John 5, 13, I write these things so that you may what? So that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants them to know and feel the power of security in Christ. That's what he wants. And I think he's a little concerned that they're going to begin feeling insecure because who can perfectly pass the tests that he's given us so far in this letter? Who can do that? And so, with the affection of a father, John turned toward the believers in the church and he comforted them, he assured them, he sought to inflame their joy. He knew that any church is a mix of believers and unbelievers. But you know what really touches me is John was not afraid to just talk to unbelievers directly in the hearing of unbelievers and give them the full assurance of their faith. He was not afraid. He knew that unbelievers would eventually be exposed by the test that he had given. 
And so he was not afraid to say what is true of believing people. But as I said earlier, he doesn't just want us to understand the theological details of this. He wants our hearts to be captured. How do I know this? I know this because John, when he came to verse 12, 13, and 14, he decided to write a poem instead of a paragraph. Nothing wrong with a paragraph. But I imagine John praying. I think he was writing in prayer. And I don't know if he's at a desk or whatever. I don't know what they used in those days. But I just imagine him writing. He gets to the end of verse 11 and he's like, well, Father, what now? Moved by the Holy Spirit, he writes a brief poem. Because he's trying to teach us some things, that's for sure. But he is trying to capture our heart. He is trying to get our hearts to sing about what God has done for us in Christ. He's trying to stir our affections and aid our memories. This is why he wrote a poem. So beloved, we have to study in order to understand. You'll see in just a few minutes, there's some things here that are a little unclear. We have to push in and say, what's John saying? What's this all about? We need to study in order to understand. But once we've understood, the point of these verses is to celebrate, and that's what I pray we will do. We'll get a chance to do that just a little bit in the service here, but mainly that's gonna have to happen after the service, and I'm pleading with you, celebrate your assurance after today is over. God brought you here to fire up your joy in him and in the security you have in your relationship with him. So with that, let's turn our hearts toward John's poem. Now, I have to first begin by explaining these words, children, fathers, and young men. You'll see that he has basically two sets of triplets in this poem, Children, fathers, parents, or young men. Children, fathers, young men, twice. And so I just want to take a little bit of time to explain this because if we don't understand what he's talking about with these terms, then I don't think we'll understand his poem. So there are three options. The first option is that when he talks about children's parents and young men, that he's literally talking to kids and then to older people who have kids and then to folks who are somewhere in between. But that, that's so unlikely that I'm not going to say anything more about it. The second option is more likely. It's possible that John, with the terms children, fathers, and young men, is talking about different levels of spiritual maturity. It's possible that when John says children, he's basically talking to new believers. It's possible that when he says fathers, and by the way, in the Greek world, the word fathers could be used to mean fathers and mothers, to be talking about men and women. Just like the word brothers can mean brothers and sisters, he could be saying fathers and mothers, and I think that's much more likely here. He has all men and women in mind, and he may be talking about spiritually mature men and women with the word fathers. And then when he comes to the word young men, which also could be used to mean young people, young men and women, he may be talking about less mature but still believing young men and women. So as he's writing to the church, he could be saying children, new believers, fathers, older believers, both men and women, more mature believers, both men and women, and then less mature but growing believers, young men and women in the middle. That's a possibility. Leading lights in the history of the church like Augustine taught this. There are many who have believed it through the centuries. I don't think you would be far off in left field if you took his poem this way. But I think there's a better way, but that's not a horrible way. That's one possibility. I think it's much more possible that John means something else and it's gonna take a little bit of explaining. So let me start with the word children. John uses the word children in his, just this letter nine different times. Two of them are in these verses and seven of them are scattered throughout, throughout the rest of the letter from chapter two all the way to chapter five. Every other time, 
he uses the word children, he is addressing the entire church. He has great fatherly affection for them. Remember, John is probably 85, 90 years old when he writes this letter. He's an old man, he's an apostle, he's a father of the church. He loves these people. And he sees them as his spiritual children. That's not a way of speaking down to them. It's a way of speaking very affectionately toward them. All other seven times, he's referring to the whole church. And it's hard for me to believe that in only these two instances that he'd be changing his use of the word. Jesus also talked about his people like this. He used the word children to speak of everybody. So I think it's much more likely in verse 12 and then at the end of verse 13, when John says children and then children again, that he's talking about the whole church, and I'm just going to assume that. And with that, he's got two groups of people in mind, fathers and young men. And I'm going to say, I do believe he means fathers and mothers and young men and women, all right? So children refers to everybody, fathers and, young, uh, and mothers refers to one group, young men refers to another. So what do these other terms refer to? Well, the word fathers is only used of, uh, right directly toward all believers, like in an entire church, in one other place in the Bible. And interestingly enough, that's in 1 Timothy 5. And the reason I say that's interesting is because Paul wrote that letter to a guy who was the pastor of the very church that John was a part of at this moment, the church of Ephesus. And in that letter, Paul told Timothy that if he had to rebuke an older man, somebody who was more advanced than him in years that he should talk to him, not with a rebuking spirit, but with an encouraging spirit. He should treat him like a father. So when you think about how he's using that word there, he means somebody who's older than him in years, but not necessarily more spiritually mature than him in years. He's just older. And so I think when we come back to John and, and think about how he would use this word fathers and how the people in Ephesus would already have understood it because of the ministry of Timothy, I think it's more likely that John is talking about the older people in the church. Let's say they're in the second half of their life. Let's just for the sake of discussion say we'll pick 80 years as life expectancy. So if you're 40 years and older, you're in that group. Believing people, men and women, who are just older in age. May or may not be more spiritually mature, but you're older in age. That's what I think John has in mind with the word fathers. The word young men in the same way, is used throughout the scripture to talk about young men and women. In the New Testament, it's used quite often. It refers to both young men and women. It's, we should hear it as young people. And it refers to folks who are literally younger in age. And since that word is so often used in that particular way, it's hard to believe that it's used in a different way here, especially when like this, these terms of young men and fathers are never used with regard to spiritual maturity anywhere else in the Bible. So I think John actually just has people who are younger in mind. And let's just say they're in the first half of life. We're talking about 40 and younger. If you're a believer, you're 40 years old and younger, you're a man or you're a woman, John has you in mind when he says young men and women, young people. So this is my perspective on John's poem. You would not be off if you took perspective number two, but the perspective I just articulated is the prevailing perspective among Bible scholars, that, the ones that I read at least. And so again, the picture is that the word children refers to the whole church. The word father refers to the older folks. The word young men and women refers to the younger folks in the church. And I'm going to proceed now as if that is, is the case. And, and again, it's okay if you don't quite agree with me now. That's okay. We can talk about it, but I'm going to proceed under that assumption. So let's begin in verse 12. John begins like this. He addresses the entire congregation, and he says, 
I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. The word forgiven here is written in a strong way. In fact, the verb is put in the strongest possible way you could put it, and it refers to perfect and everlasting forgiveness. What he wants them to know is that from his perspective, no matter what he's written up to this point, he thinks that the majority of the people in this church have put their faith in Christ and they have been forgiven decisively. And why does he think that? Chapter two, verse two, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for their sins. Chapter two, verse one, he is their righteous advocate before the Father who is pleading their case to God the Father. Chapter one, verse nine, if you will just confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive all of your sins. And beloved, John wanted his people to know that no matter the serious and difficult things that he had just said, he's persuaded that they had put their faith in Christ and that their sins were absolutely wiped away both now and forevermore. Do you understand the freedom you would have if in your heart you knew that that was true? Do you understand? Like Dave said this morning, when you come to the communion table, if you have sinned, you need to deal with your sin. There's no doubt about that. But what if you came to the table to deal with your sin by knowing that if you just confess what you've done, it's already been wiped away on the cross. You're not a captive to your sin anymore. You've already been freed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how John wanted the people of that church to understand the power of living a perfectly forgiven life. I write to you, little children, because you have been forgiven. Notice what he says at the end of verse 12. It says in the ESV, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, but I think the NIV actually captures the Greek text better here. The NIV says, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name, on the basis of his name. So it's true that our sins are forgiven and that that's gonna eventuate in the exaltation of the name of Jesus forever. Ephesians 2.7 says that. That's going to happen, but that's not John's point here. John's point here is that our sins have been forgiven because of who Christ is and what he did. If you know Greek, the word here is dia. It's through or because of or on account of, on the basis of, on the foundation of because of who Christ is and the power of his name, your sins are forgiven. Here's what he's saying. Your sense of assurance in the family of God doesn't have to do with you. It has to do with Christ. It doesn't have to do with who you are and what you've done. It has to do with who he is and what he's done for you. That's what the gospel is, beloved. Rejoice! Your sins have been forgiven on account of Jesus Christ, on the basis of Jesus Christ. Oh, the beauty, the freedom, the joy of a church who knows this in their hearts, not just in their minds, not just as a, a theological proposition and a, a treatise, but in the heart as a child of God. They understand, they embrace, they feel the power of the truth that they have been forgiven forever. This is what John wants for us, beloved. This is what he wants. With this, John turns his attention to the older folks in the congregation, and he assures them that they have come to know Jesus who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. 
He says that they have entered into the relational knowledge of God in a permanent and eternal way with the one who created them by the will of the Father and the power of his word. You see, the heretics who had risen up and divided from this church said that they're the ones who had the special knowledge. They're the ones who knew God. And John is saying they're wrong. They're wrong. You, the simple people of the church of Ephesus and the surrounding area, you people, most of whom are farmers and laborers and hard workers, you have a knowledge that has come to you by the grace of God in Christ that supersedes what those heretics have. They have nothing, they have wind, they have lies. You have a true knowledge of the one who is from the beginning. You have a true knowledge of the one who created all things. This is your reality, this is your destiny, this is your eternity, period and end of story. Now why do you suppose that John addressed this point to older folks in the congregation? Why do you think that is? And I don't know exactly, but if we're gonna go with the 80-year-old thing and you know, if you're in the second half of your life from 40 on, well, I'm 12 years into the second half, so I'm, I'm part of the old group here. So I've just been thinking about it as a middle-aged to aging guy, a guy who gets injured just sleeping now. I wake up in the morning and say, what happened to me? I have no idea, but I, I seem to have an injury. I don't know what to do about it. That phase of life, what does it mean to me that I have come to know the Father who's from the beginning? I'll tell you what it means to me. It means I can live with zero regret in this life. Young people, when you get in your 50s, 60s, 70s, you're gonna have regrets. You're gonna look back and say, man, I thought my life was gonna be this, I thought it was gonna be that. It became this, it became that. Or you're gonna say, I did this, I did that. And you're gonna live with the powerful feeling that there's nothing you can do to go back 20 years and change it. You don't know what that feels like and it's paralyzing at times. But if you know God the Father, all the greatest issues of life have been settled for you in Christ. And you can live without regret. And by the way, you're not old anyway. You're going to live forever and ever with your heavenly Father. You can be free and rest in Christ. And I'll tell you what else. As an older person, you don't have to fear death. I don't particularly look forward to the process of death. But I don't have to fear what's going to happen on the other side because I know God the Father by his grace, not because of who I am, because of who Christ is. And when I look at him face to face, I will not be looking at a stranger. I'll be looking at my father. So what do I need in this world? What do I need from this world? I'm free, beloved. I'm free. And I can serve Jesus. I can lay down my life for you. I don't need anything from this world. I think that's why. John wanted to say this to older people. It's so important for us to have the proper perspective and to divorce our love of the world. Just put our eyes upon God. And when you put your eyes upon God like that, you're free to serve him and you're free to serve others for the rest of your life. I may or may not be right about what was in John's heart, but I'm absolutely right about what God did through John's words in my heart because that's what he did in my heart and I hope that that blesses you as well. So now John turns to the younger believers in the congregation and he assures them of something that I find astounding. He says, you have overcome the evil one. You have overcome Satan. 
If you're 40 years or younger here today and you put your faith in Christ, I want you to know the verb John used here for overcome is as strong as he possibly could have said it. It's a done deal. It's a past tense thing. He's not saying you are overcoming. He's saying it's done and finished. Same type of verb that Jesus used on the cross. When he said it is finished, John uses that word for you here now. You need to hear the word of God, 40 years old and younger, filled with faith in Christ. You have overcome the world. You've overcome the evil one. What a powerful thought. What a powerful thought. Surely, John isn't saying you've done it on your own. No way. Listen to what Jesus said in John 16. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. You're going to go through all kinds of stuff, and we know that that's true. But take this to heart. I have overcome the world. So we become more than conquerors through him who is the conqueror. We become overcomers through him who has already overcome. When we put our faith in Jesus, we become one with Jesus in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension. And in this way, we overcome the world. Later, in 1 John 5, 4, John said, this is the victory that overcomes the world. Do you know what it is? Our faith. It's our faith. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about looking to Jesus Christ. And I don't care if you're 12 years old and you put your faith in Christ, you have overcome past tense the world and it's a done deal. You've overcome it forever through faith in Jesus. What a powerful thought. Powerful thought. Yesterday, Kim and I were at a conference about loving people with disabilities in Burnsville. We were there with Mariah Prange and... Um, Patience, Griswold, sorry, Patience, I had a little old guy moment there for a second. Kim, after that, took me to this apartment where she grew up in Burnsville, and she showed me this place where, as a child, she would walk around and walk the dog and sing praises to God. <laughs> She's 10, 12 years old. I said to her, really? You sang out loud? It's like, we're in public. There's people there. She's like, yeah, I sang out loud. I thought, oh, God, 12-year-old, she has overcome the world by faith in Jesus, not by herself. I don't care how old, how young you are, if you put your faith in Christ, that is the key to victory over this world. Why do you suppose John said this to the younger folks? Well, I don't know exactly, but here's my best guess. I think he wants them to know that they had overcome the world through faith in Christ so that they would not love the world more than Christ. I'm gonna say that again. And if you're under 40 years old, I really want you to listen to this. Jesus wants you to know that you have overcome the world through faith in Christ so that you will not love the world more than Christ. Look at verse 15. What's the next thing he says? Do not love the world or the things in the world. He's trying to help you understand the power of what he's done so that he can break the chains off of your heart from the world. He wants you to love him. He wants you to look to him. And I pray powerfully, most powerfully, that if you're a younger person in the congregation today, that's exactly what will happen to you. May you see yourself as what you are, an overcomer through faith in Christ, and may you be freed from the traps of this world. So this brings us to John's second set of triplets, if you will. And I want you to notice that beginning in verse 13b, 
that John changes the opening word of, of each of his stanzas. So at first he said, I am writing to you, I am writing to you, I am writing to you. Then he changes and says, I write to you, I write to you, I write to you. In Greek, it's an even stronger change. In Greek, it goes to the past tense. So it says, I am writing, I am writing, I am writing. And then the, the second three say, I have written to you, I have written to you, I have written to you. And there's reasons why the translators put it in the present tense, just the way Greek can work at times. But I actually think John has the past tense in mind. And I think what he's saying is, listen, I just said these things to, to you. Next line, I have already written this to you, and I'm going to say it again. I'm going to almost repeat myself exactly because I want you to take this to heart. I don't want you to just hear my words. I want you to receive this inside of my heart, of your hearts. Sometimes when I feel overwhelmed with love for my wife, I'll say to her, Kimberly, I love you. And if she says, oh, I love you too, and I know she's taking it just like an everyday I love you, which is just fine, nothing wrong with that. But there are times where I literally feel overwhelmed by the love of God for her. I, I really mean that. And I want her to get that, and so she'll tell you. I'll grab her by the shoulders, and I'll look her right in the eyes until I'm certain that we've moved beyond physical, fleshly things, and she's really hearing my heart, and I've got her heart, and I'll say, Kimberly, Susan, Handron, I love you. Deal with it. You're loved. You're powerfully loved. Until death do us part, you are loved, and you're loved with the love that God's given me for you. That's what John's trying to do here. In the second set of triplets, I think he's grabbing the church by the shoulders and says, saying, are you listening to me? Are you hearing me? I have already written to you, and guess what? I'm gonna write it again. I'm gonna say this to you again. I want you to feel this. I don't want you just to understand me. So he says, first to the whole congregation in verse 12, what he says there. He's already assured them that their sins are forgiven, and now he wants them to know that no matter the level of their maturity, they, like the fathers and mothers in the church, have come to know God the Father. This isn't just the purview of the older folks. This is actually the privilege of every child of the king. In fact, it's the heart of what it means to be adopted, that you have a father in Jesus Christ. Kim was saved at seven years old, and she would tell you that for her, God became like a daddy to her. The fatherness of God was very, very real to her. And whether we feel that or not, it's actually true of every single one of us. You know, different adopted children feel different about their adoptive families, but still some things are true about all of them, no matter what they feel. The truth is that every adopted child has come to know God, not just as God, but as their father. I think John wants us all to know this. He wants us all to feel the power of it. He wants us all to live inside the joy of it. So now, he turns back to the older folks, and except for the way he writes the opening verb, he, co he completely repeats himself. 100% repeats himself. And from my perspective, again, I just think he's looking them in the eyes and saying, are you listening to me? You have known the Father who is from the beginning. You have known the Father who is from the beginning. This belongs to you. All of the greatest issues of life are completely settled for you in Christ. Your will has already been written in Him and is really good. You get to inherit everything through Jesus Christ. So why are you anxious about this world? 
Are you trapped by the things of this world? Be free. That's what I hear, beloved. That's what I hear. And oh, how I pray that we'll receive that, especially if you're in the older category and you're struggling with the realities of the second half of life that are very real and sometimes very profound and even sometimes very depressing. Just hear the words of God today and be free. Be free. With that, John turns to the younger people and he actually adds a little bit here. He tells them, let's just say, again, for the sake of conversation, 40 and below, faith in Christ. He says to you that you're strong. He wants you to know that you're strong. And I don't think he's talking about the physical strength of your youth. I think he's talking about the strength that you have in Christ. And he wants you to understand that the strength you have in Christ is not about you, but it's about Christ. It's so important that you get this so that you don't live your life in arrogance. I had an interaction with a young person yesterday that I think loves the Lord, and I appreciate the guy, but he's so arrogant. Really, really thinks he's the man. Can't wait to show the world that he's the man. I can't wait to talk to him when he's 50. And God has shown him that he's not the man. Jesus is the man. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Right? You'd be so much better if you just drop arrogance on the floor now. Okay? You're strong, but you're strong in the Lord. How do I know that? Because the next thing he says, the word of God is abiding in you. It's remaining in you. It's dwelling in you. It's living in you. It's part of your everyday life. He's talking about the word of the gospel that was proclaimed by the apostles and preserved in the Bible. He's saying that you're not like those people who claim to know God, but that the word of God is not abiding in you. You're not like that. This word is abiding in you. And because the word of Christ is abiding in you, you have strength. Just like Paul wrote to the same church, the Ephesian church, you're strong how? You're strong in the Lord, right? In the Lord is your strength. You're strong in what? In the power of his might. Your strength is coming from faith in Christ. You overcame by your faith. You are strong by your faith. You abide in him by your faith. Look to Christ and rejoice in this. You have been made strong by the word of God in Christ and you are overcomers. So go out there and conquer the kingdom of darkness for the sake of the glory of the king of light. That's what your life ought to be about. I don't know what you're gonna do for work, I'm not saying you should all quit your jobs and go work for the church. Be ambassadors of God wherever you work. We need missionaries everywhere. We need missionaries in Super America. We need missionaries in Albania with one of our brothers over there that I've just recently been talking to. We need missionaries everywhere. I'm just saying, fix your eyes on Christ and understand that your strength comes from him and go out there and overcome the world for the glory of his name. Thus ends the poem. And now, we've studied a little bit, and our understanding has grown. There's more to be said, there's always more to be said, but I think enough has been said. And I wanna come back to something I said in the beginning, that I do believe we need to study in order to understand. But once we understand, now what we need to do is celebrate. The Lord hasn't brought us here today just to teach us ideas. He brought you here today as his children to capture your heart and set it on fire with joy. I'm telling you, that's what he wants. He wants you to know that you have a fullness of assurance of your relationship with him, both now and forever, that can never be taken away in Christ. 
And he wants you to know that because of that, you can have a fullness of joy that grows from now forever and ever and ever and ever through faith in Christ. So, what I wanna ask you to do now as we close out the message, I know this is a little hokey, but in just a second, I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes and I'm just gonna read John's poem to you. Please listen with the heart of faith to the word of God today and then I'll just go right into prayer. So if you will, please bow your heads and close your eyes and just allow me to read to you the words of God. And Father, I pray that as I read, that your spirit would apply your heart to your people and I thank you for what you'll do now as we read your word. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men and women, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers and mothers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men and women, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Father, we thank you for your words to us today. I pray that we have grown in understanding, but more so, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, that you would capture our hearts. Lord, our hearts need to be captured. Our hearts need to be assured that we belong to you, and not just now, but forevermore. And as our hearts are captured, Father, we need to know what it means and, and how to experience the fullness of your joy. So I pray that now that the word of God has been preached, I pray that you would come and minister to each of us and help your word have its effects now. In the mighty name of Jesus, the matchless name of Jesus, and the merciful name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen.